Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Jesse Bartholomew, and I am recording today's episode for the second time. I am usually really good about uh, reviewing the episodes way beforehand so I can make sure that they sound okay before they release. And this time around, I went to listen to it, and it sounded like I was in like an underwater tunnel. And it's because I have this echo button on this microphone, and somehow it got turned all the way up. And the whole episode just sounded crazy. So I'm recording for the second time. Hopefully you all enjoy the episode, and hopefully I don't sound like I'm in a vacuum this time. Now, today I'm talking about a person who has kind of a unique place in Kentucky's political history. And I didn't choose this guy to talk about because he's necessarily some great figure who deserves all our praises, but more because this podcast is about the strange and unusual and maybe less well-known. And I think this guy's life kind of fits into that category. Um, His life would make for a good TV show, I think. This is the story of Montgomery Blair. Montgomery Blair was born on May 10, 1813, in our state capital, Frankfort, Kentucky. His father was Francis Preston Blair, editor of the Washington Globe and well-known figure in the Democratic Party during the Jacksonian era. Montgomery Blair received a presidential appointment from Andrew Jackson to West Point, graduated in 1835, and served for a year during the Seminole War before leaving the Army and enrolling at Transylvania University to study law. In 1836, he married his first wife, Caroline Rebecca Buckner. The following year, he was admitted to the Missouri State Bar. Unfortunately, Caroline passed away in 1844, and Blair went on to marry his second wife, Mary Elizabeth Woodbury, daughter of Levi Woodbury, who was an associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Blair served as U.S. District Attorney from 1839 to 1842 and as Judge of the Court of Common Pleas from 1834 to 1849. He was also Mayor of St. Louis until 1843. He decided to move to Maryland in 1849 to focus specifically on the U.S. Supreme Court, and in the 1840s, He attended multiple Democratic national conventions, but would go on to leave the Democratic Party for the anti-slavery Free Soil Party, according to an article from the Miller Center. His record of political affiliations really changes throughout his life. So now I'm going to go into some detail about his evolution from aligning with the political stances of his family starting out to representing Dred Scott in that historic Supreme Court case. So the Blair family had initially started out as Nationalist Democrats, but it slowly left the Democratic Party in the wake of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. For those of you who are like me and took U.S. history a long time ago, here's a summary of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. It's from Senate.gov, so it's pretty straightforward. Quote, The Kansas-Nebraska Act repealed the Missouri Compromise, created two new territories, and allowed for popular sovereignty. It also produced a violent uprising, known as Bleeding Kansas, as pro-slavery and anti-slavery activists flooded into the territories to sway the vote. 
So the Blair family members were actually considered some of the founders of the Republican Party. Four years later, President Buchanan decided that Blair shouldn't hold his position as solicitor anymore. So Blair didn't love being demoted, and kind of in response to that, he campaigned hard for Abraham Lincoln in 1860. And this was a good move because in return, Lincoln made Blair Postmaster General in 1861. While he held that position, he implemented a uniform rate of postage and free delivery in cities. He also started the sale of money orders by post offices so that less people would send money in the mail and thus there would be less post office robberies. Now the Blair family was known to be conservative on the issue of slavery. But then Montgomery Blair represented Dred Scott in the famed Supreme Court case, Dred Scott v. Sanford. Dred Scott was born into slavery in or around 1799 in Virginia. He moved to Alabama with his owner in 1818 and then to St. Louis in 1830 and his owner died in 1832. So an army surgeon named Dr. John Emerson purchased Scott and later took him to Illinois, which was a free state, and then onto Wisconsin territory where slavery was already outlawed. And along the way, Dred Scott married a woman named Harriet Robinson. So her ownership then transferred to Emerson as well. And things get kind of convoluted here, so stay with me. In 1837, Emerson went back to St. Louis without Scott or his wife Harriet. Emerson later moved to a slave state, Louisiana, and married a woman named Eliza Sanford. And in February of 1838, Scott joined them there. In October of that year, Emerson, his wife, and their slaves moved back to Wisconsin, then to St. Louis again in 1842. Then they moved to Iowa, where Emerson died suddenly in 1843. Eliza took the family slaves back to St. Louis, where Scott tried to buy his freedom from her multiple times, but with no luck. It was then, in St. Louis, that both Dred Scott and his wife Harriet filed separate lawsuits for freedom in the St. Louis Circuit Court, based on the Missouri statutes that, one, allowed any person of any color to sue for wrongful enslavement, and two, any person taken to a free territory automatically became free and could not be re-enslaved upon returning to a slave state. Neither of them could read or write, so they were going to need a lot of help, really good representation. The St. Louis Circuit Court ruled against them in June of 1847. So they brought it back up in 1850, and this time they won their freedom. But in 1852, Eliza appealed to the Missouri Supreme Court, and they reversed the decision. So in 1853, Scott filed a lawsuit with the U.S. Circuit Court for the District of Missouri, and in May of 1854, they ruled in favor of Eliza Sanford. And then in December of that year, Scott finally appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the final trial began in February of 1856. So remember, it was in the mid to late 1840s that they first filed suit, so it had been many years, and by this time, 
It was a big deal. Everyone had eyes on this case. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So, in front of the Supreme Court, Montgomery Blair argued on behalf of Dred Scott that the time he'd spent in multiple free states automatically should have made him a free man. Unfortunately, on March 6, 1857, Scott lost his case for freedom. Chief Justice Roger Taney is the man who wrote the final majority opinion on Dred Scott v. Sanford, which said, quote, All people of African descent, free or enslaved, were not United States citizens and therefore had no right to sue in federal court. In addition, he wrote that the Fifth Amendment protected slave owners' rights because enslaved workers were their legal property. And what happened after that is kind of bananas. Eliza, the woman who'd fought so hard to keep her slaves, married an abolitionist, a man named Will, uh, sorry, Calvin Chafee. And he was a congressman, actually. And he, he basically said, look, Eliza, you can't have these slaves anymore. And so they sold Dred Scott and his family to a man named Taylor Blow, who happened to be the son of Scott's original owner. And on May 26th, 1857, Taylor Blow freed Scott and his family. But the ending is really quite sad because although Dred Scott eventually got his freedom, it was not the way he wanted, and he ended up dying of tuberculosis just a little over a year after he was freed. Now the reason Dred Scott is so famous, or maybe infamous, is really because it fueled the abolitionist fire. The fact that the Supreme Court made such a bad decision was really a wake-up call and a call to action, and the case itself is often attributed as being one of the events that led to the Civil War. But back to Blair's life, since that's our Kentucky guy. You know, it was a big step for Blair to represent Dred Scott in that case. It really symbolized a shift at the time, you know, simply that public opinion on slavery was changing. A man who came from a family who typically wouldn't have supported abolition, or at least been vocal about it, was now representing a slave demanding his freedom in the highest court in the country. So remember, that all happened before Blair was appointed Postmaster General. That wasn't until 1861. But he would go on to serve in that position until 1864, when Lincoln accepted Blair's resignation amidst pressure from the radical Republican faction. Even after he stepped down from his cabinet position, Blair and Lincoln remained close, and Blair went on to campaign for his re-election. Also, Montgomery Blair really wanted to be the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court after that, but it just wasn't in the cards for him. After the Civil War, Blair rejoined the Democrats, and established a Democratic newspaper, and his brother was even the Democratic vice presidential candidate in 1868. 
1876, Blair was counsel to Secretary of War William Belknap during the House of Representatives' investigation into the Trader Post scandal. This scandal would definitely have its own episode if it happened in Kentucky. There's a really wonderful article I'll link to in the show notes, and I do want to read you one excerpt from it now. Remember, the guy responsible for this was someone Blair was working for directly. Quote, The Belknap scandal sent shockwaves worldwide. The general effect beyond denial, said the London Telegraph, has been and is to bring the blush of shame and anxiety into the face of all honest Americans and to make countless friends of the republic in this country silent and sorrowful, while its enemies rejoice over these recurring revelations. The London Standard tacked on, happily, the countries are few where so gross an abuse of trust as appears to have just been confessed by the United States Secretary of War would be possible. So there's that. And after that whole debacle, Blair went on to run for U.S. House of Representatives in Maryland's 6th District in 1882, but he lost. As for his later life, Blair's 600-acre manor he called Falkland was burned by Confederate troops. He died in the area that would now be Silver Springs, Maryland, on July 27, 1883. He was buried in Rock Creek Cemetery, and the United States Post Office closed on July 30, 1883, in his honor. So according to Wikipedia, his character in the movie Lincoln was portrayed a little bit inaccurately. They made it so that he seemed like he was against the 13th Amendment in the movie, when in real life he was more concerned with, quote, punishing secessionists and restoring the Union than abolishing slavery. He accepted the abolition of slavery as necessary, despite his dislike of abolitionists by 1863. Huh. A journalist named Noah Brooks described Blair this way, that his, quote, manners were awkward and unattractive. In politics, he was a restless mischief maker, and like his little brother Frank, he was apparently never so happy as when he was in hot water or making hot water for others. So, I don't know, make what you will of that. It's the brief story of the life of Kentucky native, Montgomery Blair. Thanks for listening to another episode of Kentucky History and Haunts. If I need to make a correction, or you want to send me a suggestion for a future episode, you can email kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. I'll link in the show notes to that article about the Belknap scandal, as well as some other things I mentioned in this episode. I just don't ever want to go too far into these other things, um, because, you know, they take me away from whatever I'm talking about that relates to the state of Kentucky, if that makes sense. So, that's all I've got. Thank you guys so much for listening, and until next time.